0: Welcome to episode 32 of the Camerosity podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we're back from our summer hibernation. The gang and I took some time off the show so that we could complete a mandatory 28 day rehab cleanse from all our gas afflictions. With this, the second season of the Camerosity podcast, we hope to bring you more of the same in-depth discussions about camera history, gear, collecting, and frankly, whatever else you all wanna talk about. From a land where the toilets flush in the opposite direction, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Welcome back, Theo. How has the past several weeks been treating you?
1: Oh, they've been great, mate. I've been uh, I've be sort of pondering whether it's uh, our toilets that go the opposite direction or it's actually your toilets that go the opposite direction.
0: I guess it's a matter of perspective, right? <laughs>
1: yes.
0: <laughs> From Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Americana Folk Music Gathering himself, Paul Reibold. It sure must be hard to balance being the world's number one vintage camera seller on eBay and a famous music festival producer. How do you do it?
2: I owe it all to the banjo. Banjos are my life.
0: And finally, from his home in Fort Dodge, Iowa, the man, the myth, the king of the gnomes, the one, the only, Mr. Mike Novak. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing
3: good, just enjoying the nice. The nice weather we're getting
0: here. Yeah, is it as muggy there as it been for me, too? Oh, it's not.
3: It's beautiful here.
0: Oh, it finally cooled down? Yeah. Oh, maybe tomorrow then, because I get weather right after Mike does. I can't believe it's been almost two months since we were all together to record an episode. Well, actually, one of us has been recording podcasts. Theo, I recall you made a special guest appearance on a recent podcast. How did that go?
1: Oh, really well, actually. It was quite interesting. It was good to talk to um, Mike Gutterman and uh, everybody there, but... Yeah, you know, there was obviously the the interim podcast we had here with Robot Theo, which yes. uh, you know, which you know, he's starting to become a bit of a mainstay. So not sure. You never know when he might make an appearance.
0: That bastard. So you were on Negative Positives, episode 391 uh, with Mike Gutterman and- um,
1: Andre Dominguez.
0: It's right. Andre, Andre's been on the show. I think he was in one of our earlier episodes. Yes, I listened to it. It was a great show. Uh, and I think they paid us probably the best compliment- that anybody could ever give us that uh, those guys voted Camerosity podcast is the nerdiest podcast out there. So uh, I guess that's kind of a compliment, right? Being a nerd is the new cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Anything else you've been up to lately, Theo?
1: No, no, basically um, I've been making a few purchases here and there as, as usual, but uh, generally trying to do a bit of shooting lately and, uh, and taking uh, various cameras out and uh, having a bit of a a go and trying um, something different. Uh, I I actually um, I actually got lent a um, a Lomo LC Wide by a friend of mine. Um, okay. Thanks, Adam. Call out to Adam on that one. And this is a really interesting little camera. Actually, it it I didn't realise that it existed. It's 17 millimetre lens, so it's like the LCA wow. but with a 17 millimetre lens. But it's got this switch down the bottom where you can change from full format to half frame and you can actually do it in square as well but it does require a uh an interesting frame to put into the back um to to help the half frame um get the, the nice clean edges but if you don't use it they sort of blend into each other and you end up with this diptych triptych quadriptych Um, which sort of blends into each other. So I'm going to be doing a little bit of experimentation with that uh, in the near future.
0: So it's just regular 35 millimeter film and it requires baffles to get the different shapes, I guess.
1: Yes. So obviously you
0: you can't switch it mid roll then obviously.
1: Not normally, but I I have been doing that because I don't have the baffles. So I've been doing that. That's how I ended up with, I ended up with that situation where it sort of blends into each other. So it's quite, quite an interesting little camera, nice and light. It's like the, Normal LCA, except it's made in China instead of um, uh, the Soviet Union and right, um, right. The, the original Soviet Union ones, and it's uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun. But uh, you look through the viewfinder, and I tell you what, it's an, a very surreal experience. Everything's round and wide
0: and curved and all sorts of things. Lots of barrel distortion. So the so Lomo made the original LCA. Many years ago, and that became kind of like the the the, the quintessential when Lomo became like a, a popular way for people to get back into film, and then they kind of expanded that into the LCAY. They made a 120 version of that camera too. So, yeah. have you shot any of the other like variations of that same thing?
1: Uh, just the original one. I got an original Soviet version, which came in the little red okay. box that you can get them in. And I, wrote, mm-hmm. in fact, that was my last article on photo thinking. And it's an um, absolutely fun camera. And and this is what actually prompted Adam to to send me this uh, because um, to pass this on to me to have a go because he said, Oh try try this one, it's a bit different. And uh, he's cool. right actually, it looks exactly the same, but it's uh, it's it's quite different.
0: So the 17 millimeter lens, it does it show a lot of like vignetting when you actually develop the images. Yeah,
1: yeah, it it does. Okay. and and that's um and that's part of its appeal as well. Yeah, right. But, cool. uh, but uh, what, what's actually quite interesting is what I've noticed is a lot of the pictures, you'd expect uh, a lot of the distortion to to end up with the horizon curved um, downwards on the sides. It doesn't do much. There's this, there must be some sort of correction going on in there as well. Is the film plate, curved? No, it's not. It's flat. So, wow. um, yeah, so they've done some sort of black magic in there, but uh, I'm not quite sure what.
2: Totally by accident. I'm sure.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they just use the right amount of bacon grease to get it all to work properly.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, I was just surprised because it didn't actually, yeah, I didn't even realize it existed. So, um, I knew the 120, but I never knew about this wide one. So this is a great little toy to play around with.
2: What about you, Paul? Well, I've just, uh, I've been on a feeding frenzy the last uh, several days helping, uh, One of my old customers' family get rid of some of his stuff, and it was a lot of RB six sevens and and more sort of modern, you know, four by five calumet with five Nikkor large format lenses. But the interesting part was the Praktina FX with the biotar, Um, and it's reached the point now where I have like four biotars, and I think I'm going to buy an adapter for this one. This one is so clean that. uh, but it's Practina mount, so Ramir on uh, eBay as a uh, rare adapters uh, sells a uh, uh, an adapter to use Practina to Sony. So yeah. I think you want to do
0: that. It's a uh, it's proprietary, like you said. It's like a breech lock, similar to Canon. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: the other one that I got that was sort of cool was uh, the Miranda G with a T right. finder with a T meter, and uh, unfortunately, I I put a, a, a regular six twenty five battery in it. And it does read, but I don't think it's uh, even close to being right. No,
0: I have I have tried uh, putting batteries in a variety of Miranda's and I have never once found one. That camera seems to be more sensitive to voltage voltage differentiations than any other camera, because like I've put because, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, the mercury battery is originally 1.35 volts. And unless you get like a wine cell or something with a a voltage adaption or something, most alkaline batteries are 1.5 to 1.55 volts. And that difference of 0.2 volts can throw off a meter. Yeah, Mike's got a wine cell there. The wine cells work great. The problem with them, though, is they're extraordinarily expensive and they have a very short shelf life. They can die even in the package.
2: Yeah, you know, they've got the little green sticker on them. And once you peel that sticker off, then it begins to degrade. Correct. I can find that Amazon has been selling them in a two-pack, and uh, oh really? Yeah, and it's a little—it's almost like getting one free, or at least getting one at okay. half off. So I—I I had to buy them because I had a couple of Leica Flex SL2s, and those cameras used two of them. So I and I didn't want to take a chance of using a
0: right.
2: battery with them. So I—I I bought the Ween cells. and they—they they work okay. I mean, I'm seeing—I'm getting like six months out of them, which
3: Oh wow, that's
0: pretty
2: that's
1: not too bad. Now what
3: I I bought my using the uh rolling thirty-fives.
1: Uh-huh. I I would question though the longevity longevity of those meters though too, because I know with my Miranda that even using the the little MR9 adapter, which actually supposedly you know regulates the um, the voltage um, from the one point five voltage batteries, still still actually the the meter is way off hmm. uh, to the point where it's unusable. Um, I, I don't even use it. So um, the camera works fine. It, it works great. It's just the the metering just way off. Um, so I would actually question some of the longevity of some of those um, meet, meters in the Mirandas.
2: I pulled the wrong camera. I, I the other thing I got was uh, an OM one and an OM two, and the OM one in I I did put the uh, the alkaline battery in that one six twenty five. And it, it's actually very close. It may be that those cameras, uh, the metering is not dependent as much on the voltage, like Pentax Spotmatic's were.
0: Right. Yeah. Some of them handle it fine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But it was funny because Olympus, if you'll remember, the OM2s, Olympus packed with the uh, with the camera instructions that you should not use anything but silver batteries with the OM2. If you put A76s in them, it would it would not only not meter it correctly it would die within like days. I mean, it just drained them.
0: In the early days of cameras using AA batteries, you know, rechargeables were NICAD, the nickel cadmium batteries. And those had a much, much different voltage curve. And I've, I remember saying a lot of the earlier point and shoots, like maybe the, the Nikon, the A35 or L, L35, I can't remember what it's called. I believe those have in the manual, do not use rechargeable batteries because right. the, the earlier ones were just terrible
2: well, they're one point three five volts, yeah, instead of one point five. But then when they came out with nickel metal hydrides, you could then you could do it because they, they boosted the voltage
0: back up. Yeah, but for the era, the original NiCad batteries just did not play yeah. well with yeah. earlier no, alkaline. they down immediately. So it's so back to that pactina. Um You haven't shot it yet, right, Paul?
2: No, I haven't. Uh, you know, I got too many cameras, uh, and I really should because I mean it it works it's uh shutter speed on it seems to be right um the the curtains look good so i really should try to shoot with it but i've got uh, coming in on thursday i've got a leica m4p coming in that i really need to test because i really need to test it <laughs> <laughs> i really he i really to. need to do pictures with this one so uh we'll uh we'll we'll, we'll make that the priority right now
1: okay all right. uh, is that one that's ending up in the personal collection, Paul?
2: I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this one might, though. That's the other one I just recently got from my... The friend. Rolly
0: Flicks. Rolly 28,
2: 2.8? Yeah. yeah, 2.8D. D. Yeah, with the uh, Schneider lens, with the Xenotar. Okay. Oh, which was sort of cool. Do you remember... If you, did you review this one, Mike? Have you done the 2.8D? No. They, they Believe it
0: or not... The only TLR Roloflex I have or TLR I've ever reviewed is the old standard. I have a, um, a K2A that I've had for quite a while that works great. I mean, it's, it's in perfect operating condition. And I actually have on loan, um, oh, God, I'm gonna, I forgot who sent it to me. I'm embarrassed. It was, uh, I think it was Hong. Hong, I think, sent me his 28A. And I shot a roll of film through it. And, you know, that's one camera. That, you know, when you look at the reviews on my site, I have a hard time reviewing cameras that everybody knows a lot about. Like it, it, it's just it's I get into a review more if I could actually learn something new from it. But when it's something really, really common like that, like I've always struggled with some Nikon reviews because I just feel like. You know, you everybody knows all there is to know about an F4. You know, I don't know that I could do anything different that hasn't been written out there a million times. And, you know, Roli really TLRs are just so damn many of them. And there's so much already out there that I, I want to. Like, I like the idea of having a two two eight, you know, in my review repertoire. But it's just, it's one camera that uh, I've never never gotten around to doing. But, uh, you know, maybe I should.
2: Well, they're just incredibly hard to figure out what they are. I mean, unless you... Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough, roller flexes and roller cords. The serial number is, is, is really the only way you can do it. But then you have the problem because there's different um, right. uh, different, different people use different descriptors for what the serial number can yeah. is. The 2AD is pretty easy to figure out because it's sort of unique, but they yeah. made it both both the planar and the xenotar. And the, the, uh, the, 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 the question was always asked, why did they do both? And the reason was, well, they wanted to use Zeiss lenses, but Zeiss couldn't produce enough lenses for the cameras they were making. So they went to Schneider to, uh, to sort of fill in the gaps when when they needed them. And frankly, I, I don't think there's a lot of difference in them. I know people that have owned both, and they both love them.
1: Schneider's not really a, uh,
3: not really a, a downgrade, right, is it? I can't really see much difference between the lenses, and I have many of them.
0: So, so Mike, you have a pretty good collection of Rolies, though. So, like, okay. what if somebody were you know, wanting to you know get their first Raleigh TLR, like where would you steer them? I would steer them to the 2.8E. 2.8E. Yeah,
3: it's got everything that the 2.8F has, but it's cheaper.
2: And then the G is the 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 G and the GXs or that's just cosmetic stuff, isn't it, Mike. It's just just cosmetics plus.
3: and metering too. I think I think some of those have DTL meters, which I'm not sure how it works but
0: there's one of the models they call it the t it has the different shutter release kind of on the on the bottom kind of like on a chin yeah. or whatever like what was the purpose of that
2: it took it was a lower cost lower price point
0: it uses
3: a uh a, like a band to, to change the focus i think i actually
2: right. really like that camera and i i've tried it i've tried to keep a couple of them and I, I always wind up selling them but it was actually not a bad camera it's a little lighter weight i think they really took a lot of the they, they cheapened it when they made it. It was made for a price point. But I, the ones I've shot with were really good.
3: It's like a cross between a uh, an automat and a rolly cord. So I don't think it has the automatic frame counter like on the... on the. On the oh, okay. The yeah. I didn't roll, know that. You start the first frame with a, either... A, red a, window? A, with an air, or a red window. I can't remember which. I think it was the arrow. I never, hit, never got mine to work, so... <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, that's the only rolly I can look at it from across the room and know what it is.
0: Because yeah. it's got that, it, I call it the chin. It's got like a Jay Leno kind of chin that sticks out at the bottom of the taking well, lens. Well,
2: the, the angle shutter release. but Yeah, right. Well, mm-hmm. if,
0: if, if you use a little forced perspective,
3: you can confuse it for the baby gray because it is yeah. the shutter. James yep, Fox.
0: the same one okay yeah, yeah i like the roll was so popular it's such an iconic camera so many of the japanese companies copied it almost exactly but i do like some of the ones where they kind of took some liberties and changed it like the minolta auto cords with the focus rack that's directly below it or the rico diacord i know mike you're a fan of the diacord it has paddles oh, yes on either it. side
3: it's the easy to camera for me to focus you know you right it's just one finger in on either hand.
0: Well, and you never have to reposition your hands. You could you could stabilize yeah. the camera lens with your is sharp. Yeah, and then um, there's the Fujica Flex, which I'll have a review of this one pretty soon. This was Fuji's one and only TLR. And one thing that's cool about this that I didn't even realize until I had it for like two months was that the shutter release button is for your right index finger, exactly where it would be on a Rolleiflex. But on the opposite side, there's a threaded socket where you can unscrew the shutter release and you could physically move it over to the other side and the shutter release works with your right finger too. So you can fire the shutter, same spot, but on the other side of the camera. And I I don't think, I don't know if you could buy, like, I mean, you definitely can't buy today, but when this thing was new, I guess it's plausible. You could have had shutter releases on both sides, but it was kind of neat. Like they gave you like a choice of which side you wanted the shutter release to be on. But uh, that's kind of a neat little feature. Um, that you don't see too often. And, and I talked about this camera before on a previous episode where the winding knob is also the focusing rack. So you pull it out to wind it, push it back in to focus, but it's the exact same knob. So you can do that action without ever having to reposition your hand. So I kind of like seeing some of the other takes that some of the other more clever manufacturers tried to when they were making a...
1: How complex would that be inside the mechanisms with all those differences there
0: having never seen the inside of one of these you can actually kind of look like with a flashlight into the hole and it looks like there might just be a paddle like a paddle right. that might run the whole length of the bottom of the camera that probably triggers the, the the shutter release it's on the shutter itself and i think when you're just moving the the button you're just hitting one side of the paddle i i, I would just guess wild. that's how it works it just but it's cool though like you know this is crazy. i don't know the how most- many
3: the most unusual Rolie. Oh, is that a magic Rolly Magic, magic one. You know, and then the the meter seems to work right, but the aperture does not. Oh, so oh wow! i kind shoot it you, wide open. I, you know, there's no, there's no manual control there's at no all.
2: Manual control is there on that camera?
3: There is. You can change the aperture, and you can change the. It's got like a focus, and it, it works. You set a guide number.
0: I have a, a Rico made a, a one twenty seven. TLR called the Ricomatic, I think, Ricomatic 44. And it's similar in that it's got, it's auto exposure with a selenium cell and it's meant to be used fully automatic, but you can adjust the aperture by changing the guide settings.
2: So that's what you have to do, just change your guide number to... Yeah, you, know, to you just have clear.
0: to know which guide setting corresponds to which f-stop, but with yeah. that information, you can technically manually shoot it. They I have successfully shot a roll over through my... It's a fun camera.
2: One of the things I like. This is in the repair queue right now, but this is this is that Roloflex that you guys convinced me to buy at that auction. The the thing that I like best about these is the fact that you got your shutter cocking and your shutter
0: release. That's how the old ones were. Yeah, the old standards that way. Yeah. cord four.
2: This I believe is a four uh, or a three yeah. A. Is there a three A? It's a three A or a four?
3: No, that's a four. Four. You can tell oh, by the little dip underneath the taking lines there.
0: Yeah. So for people listening, if you've never seen what he's doing, picture a roller core we've you know looks like a Roller Flex, but but below the taking lens is a, a lever that if you go one direction, it, it cocks the shutter and then you pull it back the other direction and it fires a shutter.
2: So nice, the whole it's very easy to do multiple exposures. Right.
3: I think that one should have Multi-exposure prevention on it. I don't
2: know how you say. Um, yeah, maybe it does. But this one, I mean, you can keep firing it. You can right keep cocking it even
0: it's, without advancing the shutter.
1: Yeah, I'm actually using it for a project at the moment. I've got a I'm using for a project at the moment, which is with um well, the collective one with um, pixels and grain, and we're doing multiple exposures of uh of the same thing handheld, and we're talking about like 50 or 20 exposures at a time. So it's really really gives you a wild wild kind of view because you end up with this thing that's sort of in focus and then everything else is sort of moving around it. And I use the Rolly cord for that because specifically for that reason, it's so easy to just keep taking shot after shot by just just um, uh, continuously just cocking the shutter and firing it.
2: When you do that, Theo, what are you doing for exposure? Are you are you underexposing on purpose? Heaps,
1: yeah. Basically based on the
2: number of exposures you're going to make.
1: Yeah, that's putting science into it. Um, <laughs> that's uh, um, basically shutting it down to the lowest aperture and the fastest speed, and you can get away with about fifty to twenty exposures on a on a reasonably wow. lit day. Um, and it's quite quite wild. I'll share one in in for the notes. Uh, one of the the results on that. It's actually quite quite an interesting perspective. There's, there's actually um, some artists that do that where they start to move around subject as well. So you end up with uh, like a pole or something like that's round and it's got the same sort of look on either side, but you're moving around it and you end up having different backgrounds and it's, it comes through fairly sharp. But um, the rolling cord is perfect for that. The Mamiya C3s also work really well for that as well.
0: I have a ton of respect for people who can effectively double, triple quadruple expose an image and it looks cool. Like, I mean, that's one of those things that when, when done correctly, It looked awesome. I remember seeing some photographer one time that used um, some lens, maybe it was a trial plan. I can't remember, but it was one of the ones that does like soap bubble bokeh. And he would shot like these toy rockets, like children's toys. And then he double exposed soap bubble bokeh, but in the shape of like flames coming out the back of the rocket. And so you see this rocket in the center, like it's kids. It's clearly a toy, but it's got these little circular orbs coming out. Like it's like thrust coming from the engines. And I was like, man, you know, not only to have the vision to see that in your head ahead of time, but then to be able to execute, it is super cool. Um, Obviously digital, you know, makes that easier to do than on film, but, you know, double exposing anything and getting something that actually looks cool rather than just two images on top of one another is, is for me you know maybe I'll get a happy accident now and then but to be able to do it on purpose is is, is really awesome
1: yeah look I'm, I'm happy to get a result using negative film um, there is one guy that's actually using slide film and doing it and the results are just absolutely extraordinary yeah yeah you know, 15 exposure's just it's superb
0: I saw somebody who did double exposures on film one the right way and then he red scaled for the double images. So he had one shot, shot on the emulsion, oh. and then he actually took, which, which blows my mind that you could do that because by the act of taking the film out, flipping it around, you have to put it back in the cassette, then reload it in the camera. How do you even get the frames to overlap? You know, like, like it, it, you, you'd almost have to have a mark on the, the, the leader where you wind it and put it at the exact same spot in the camera close the door and then wind it the exact same amount of times. And hopefully you're right on the same frames again. Yeah, it never, Well,
2: if you have a Nikon, like an F or an F2, that you hundred percent accurate viewing, you got a, you got a shot at that. But when we yeah. used to do title slides without a pin registered camera, I mean, you, when you did that, you really wanted a pin registered Nikon like made by slide magic or Oxberry or somebody, but you just, what you described, Mike, if you mark the, mark the sprocket, and you yeah. reload it. You you got a chance to get it. and get
1: close. Yep. There is another way though. I I had dinner with uh, an artist um, a few last week actually uh, called Ben Felton. He's a French artist that does double exposures of portraits. And what he does is he actually shoots some textured pictures of say leaves or plants or you know he spends a fair bit of time in botanical gardens. Puts that film aside and then takes portraits of of um, usually nude models because it it transposes on the skin. That work looks absolutely fantastic, and it's actually gaining a lot of momentum. But the way he actually manages to line all that up is he uses a Canon EOS 300. And the reason why he uses those cameras, he's got a whole bunch of them, is because they pre-wind the film. So it it actually feeds it back in. Yeah, so it's always going to gonna end up on the same spot because it's it's always yeah. winding the film up to the point where it feels the resistance, which should be, in theory, the same spot each time.
0: There was a couple of the consumer grade Nikon SLRs that did that, like the one of the later ones around 2000, because I think the thought was they didn't have faith that people wouldn't open the back of the camera and ruin the film and by by preloading your exposed images are already back in the cassette mm-hmm. so if you open up your camera all you're doing is ruining the film you haven't shot yet as opposed to ruining the images you have shot so uh the eos 300 you said does that uh, a couple okay. i know there are there
3: are a number of
0: rico yeah to the gr1
3: and, and related that will prewind it and I yeah, think the, one of the early Fuji, Fujis, like the DL-100
0: or something, also did. So that's a good tip, too. If you have the right gear, it can make that, that act a little bit easier. We've probably just driven up
1: the process of the Kenley three hundred. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Mike, it's been a while. Um, I looked, the last time you were on the show was episode 11, ironically, the Miranda episode. And we've already started talking about Miranda's again. But uh, you were on the very first Cocaine and Waffles, too. So... Uh, you've been on the show a couple times. What's new in your world? I mean, anything exciting in the past year or whatever?
3: I haven't really been buying any cameras because, you know, unless I see something that's that I really, really need to have.
0: Is is Wendy in the room?
3: Wendy winks wink, <laughs> wink twice. Oh, she's it's fine. <laughs> but uh, what I've been doing is shooting more, except lately I've been shooting less. But even shooting less, I think I'm making... Better choices as to what I shoot.
2: I, I get a big kick out of your developers because you seem to have a, uh, a a wide variety of of uh, processing chemicals that you use. Uh, developers in particular. I have some favorites. D, are you shooting DDX? Are you using DDX? Is that one of your? No, I'm
3: using Pyrocat HD a lot. You know? That's
2: that's the one I was
3: moving back to back to the old road and all lately too. Occasionally, I'll, I'll use H-C
0: 110. So that's one thing that has always mystified me, right? Like, when whenever you talk to somebody, uh, and we're going to explore this a little bit more in our next episode, but whenever you talk to someone who's new to film and has never developed at home, right? Like, so you get somebody who is interested in film. They start shooting a couple film SLRs, and they send out their film to Dwayne's. For, for when you're trying to convince somebody to home develop, it's almost always do black and white. Black and white's easier. Don't start on color. And there is some truth to that. Like that's, I would recommend that too. However, in defense of C41 color developing, there's only one way to do it, right? It doesn't matter whether it's Kodak, Boogey, uh, Farania, or some other, you know, cinema film. It doesn't matter what speed it is. It doesn't matter whether it's fresh or expired. You follow the exact same steps for C41 every single time. But black and white, there's all these different developers. There's like two dozen developers. You could develop with coffee grounds, you know, Rod and all, HC-110, uh, Pyrocat. You know, I can't even name them all, you know? And then not only that, there's there's, there's standard development. There's a uh, cold stand. There's just like, it, it almost feels to me like the first time you develop black and white film, you think, oh, this isn't too hard. But then the more you do it, the more complicated it gets. So. With that, Mike, like, how do you decide, like, how do you make the decision of which developer you want to use for each film? I mean, you don't, like, do just, you just mix and match and hope for the best, or?
3: No, you get, you know, after you develop enough film, you kind of get a feel for what one developer does better than the other. I use a lot of semi-stand with the kit now because I feel like gives me be the best dynamic range out of the film. But if I want to push the contrast a bit, I'll I'll... I'll overdeveloped in and rodinal and, and, and you can use the agitation to de- to decide how much grain you want which a lot of
0: people don't seem to realize you can change the grain structure then by yeah more edgi-
3: more ag- aggressive agitation will will increase the grain
0: so that's why stand development is better for older films because you're not really agitating it a lot well i never thought stand development was better for older films but
3: yeah, I think okay. that's that's the theory. Well, really, stand development it, it it's made to exhaust all of the developer in the in, in the solution, so you can't really okay. develop with stand development.
2: I I just don't understand stand development. It's to me the 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 optimal develop was the, the optimal way to develop black and white film was to to have it in the chemicals or in the fluid for a shorter time possible to keep the emulsion from swelling and when you do stand development for 60 minutes you gotta you gotta have a lot of swelling in the emulsion as well as temperature control issues unless you got it in a bath well I
3: stand development is not temperature dependent anyway I, I I developed in the pyro kit for 45 minutes and I, I've never really noticed any swelling
2: really in the he, with, with the old the, with triax in particular if you were in if you were in solution for longer than including a wash for longer than 20 minutes you could wind up with you know, the emulsion would swell and you'd wind up with not reticulation, but something that looked like reticulation, like more like the grain uh, and the grain would get mushy. It wasn't a defined grain, which I'm fine with. I'm fine with defined grain, but you know, I, I'm old. And so we were doing diaphine and Acufine and Accu1 and, and uh, crone additive with d 76 and those things. And, and the development time on them generally was about eight minutes. Uh for that'd be the longest you would develop for, so uh, the all the uh, the longer development times and uh, the caffeinols and all that stuff is it's just a mystery to me. Well, I think it's the difference
3: between whether it's a standard developer or a staining developer too. Like a yeah. caffeinol is a staining developer higher can to is too. I think that you can get more control with over contrast by right? over under developing and a staining developer and it'll it'll print better. You know, sometimes you underexpose with a standard developer, and it, it it kind of looks like crap. <laughs>
0: yeah. So here's a question for you. I have a whole bunch, a couple hundred foot rolls of expired, like early '90s Kodak Plus X, right? And it 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 still shoots. Like I've gotten decent images out of it, but like when I when I pull the film out of the tank, the base is still very dark. Right. So like I see mm-hmm. my images on it, but the base layer is a dark gray. Like compared to a fresh film where the the base will either be clear or like a light gray. Is there a way when you get a film like like my plus X, and I've gotten it consistently, where the base layer is dark? Is there a way to lighten it? Like, is there a, a different kind of bleach a, you could use? A,
3: a, a additive. I can't remember exactly like benzo something. I'd see if I can find it
2: in. Well, anti-fog. Anything yeah. that was an anti-fog would do that. Um, Kodak used to sell anti-fog tablets that you could add to the developer for older film, but it's just probably a chemical that you could do use.
0: So I and I use HC 110 which I always was told has an element of anti-fog built into it, right? Or would you add more?
2: Your plus X is so old that it's probably just okay. base fog. It's just base fog.
0: So that's really it. Is I have to research how to reduce base fog
2: yeah because uh, i mean plus x didn't have a deep base like that when it was new
0: right yeah. if i do X and plus x side by side even this, even the X could even be older X mm-hmm. still comes out with a very very light gray base layer which when you scan it you get a ton of contrast whereas with the with the uh the plus x because the base layer is so dark where the image is it, the scanner doesn't see as much of a gradient in there
2: right what about the frame lines, Mike? Is the frame are the frame lines dark also? Yeah, uh, okay. the whole it's thing from edge to definitely edge. Hard. The
0: chemics, chemical I
3: was thinking of is benzotriazole, and you could sell you could buy that photographic okay. formula formulary and you mix 10 grams into 500 million milliliters of hot distilled water, then add 15 to 30 milliliters. milliliters so we are developing working solution of that.
0: I'll give it a shot. Well, Theo, has any of this helped convince you to try home developing or are you are we pushing you away even further?
1: <laughs> it's actually pushing me away. That's too
0: complicated. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I thought yeah. I would
3: never get the hang of it either. But you know, once you get started, then you get curious yeah. and say you read you, you do a little research and say, I want to do this,
1: make my negatives, do this or that. Look, I, I used to develop some film, but my my challenge at the moment is the lab is literally five minutes down the road from where I live. So, it's very easy for me to just drop things off and they
0: get done. Even with the lab being down the road, though, like the cost difference is stark. Like it's a huge difference. Though. Like, how, what are you paying your lab?
1: It's usually about $15 per roll. That's five yeah. dollars So,
3: now you are doing your own scans, though, right? Old... I am doing my own scans, yes. Yeah.
1: So, at least you have so. control of your negative. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I still want to control the, the final image,
0: but uh, it's... Uh... You get a bottle of like HC-110 and like 30 bucks will last you over a year, you know? So, I mean, and, and I get it. Like some people just don't want to do it and that's totally cool. But um, I think that's really why I do it. It's like, I don't necessarily love the process. I don't mind it. Like sometimes it is fun to just stand there over the sink, <laughs> you know, doing a couple of rolls. Yeah, look at Mike's bottle. That's this the old time. too. lasted me more than 10 years. Mike yeah, down that's to, Mike what use
2: down use to the X-10 dregs. Yeah. I will use the HC110
3: oh, wow. mostly with like the Codex Max films. It seems so That's what back. I use it for too. The uh, bicubic grain. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um. What's interesting is you have the old formula too. So they they reformulated it. Uh. But two I have years. I've not ago. tried to
3: reformulate it. Maybe in about three or four years, I'll have to buy
2: another be, bottle. Be out of it. Well, I I just ordered I just ordered twenty uh one ounce syringes because my problem with HC110 is that it's so thick. And I mix it, you know, like everybody else, half to 15 and a half or one to 31. And uh I can't I can't, I don't think I get all the developer out of the the small graduate. Uh so I, I, what I usually do
3: is I, I will fill a beaker with with the water I need and use a clean beaker, and I'll put like a hundred milliliters into that beaker or the the concentrated of the AC110 into the beaker, then uh-huh. use my other beaker to Rinse the beaker
0: out. Well, yeah, I, I do that too. Uh, uh,
2: that's what I've been doing, or or I just throw the little beaker in the big beaker, mm-hmm. and let it sit there for a while until I think yeah. it's all
0: it's all flushed out. So for HC110, the new formula, you can see it in the bottle. It's much liquid yeah, it's much not better. the thick syrup it but, but look the at it, look at the Well, so here's the thing though. This this started out clear. It had a very, very light, I kept that on all the way. When this stuff first came out, people freaked out not only because it was waterier, but it was clear. And it, it, everybody wanted the the dark, like caramel colored like Mike's bottle there, but mm-hmm. it turns dark over time. It, yet it's still just as effective. So if you have a, a bottle of the new stuff long enough it will darken uh, approximately to the same color as the old stuff does, does it get, but it's still, well? No, it does not. I mean, you, you, I don't know if you can see it in the video. Uh, I really don't want to keep tilting it, but it's, It's, uh, so it does get thicker, but you know, what's funny is I think, I want to say it was Johnny Martyr, or it might've been Alex Likes, I can't remember which one, one of those two guys did a review, crystals start to form on the bottom of the bottle. And they said that that's not a problem at all. As long as you don't let the crystals fall into your tank while you're developing, but I don't know. I mean, it clearly is a different formula. The consistency is different. It starts out clearer, but I can honestly say the results are exactly the same it, it truly does work just as good as the old syrup does. For Mike Gutterman, if we were ever trying to dispel the nerdiest podcast, we were doing a very bad job of it. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I hope that if anybody is listening that has never developed before, it doesn't have to be this complicated. I mean, the one thing I will say about black and white is you could totally screw it up and you will still get an image. It may not be the best image you could have gotten. But you could almost certainly get something, which, which I think is why they usually recommend it. You know, temperature variations, especially with HC-110, like you just got to be in the ballpark. Whereas C-41, you know, even though I said you, you could, it's the same steps, it is a little bit more specific about temperatures. You know, you only get maybe like a five degree wiggle room, whereas um, and some people would even say less than that.
3: Well, you could develop C-41 at room temperature. It just takes a long time.
0: You got to get the timings. Yeah. You got to adjust it. But I mean, I've used the, I like the unicolor kits the best. Um, I've tried a couple of the different ones. I've tried some of the, the ones that can do the RemJet and C41, the ECN two and C41 kits. The colors do not come out right. I don't care what they tell you. It is not the same. Uh, yeah. You'll get an image, but I mean, it, unless you're purposely trying to take fresh Kodak gold or whatever, and purposely get expired look from it. I, I, I have not had luck with those combined ECN2-C41 kits on fresh film, but um, maybe some people like that look. But for me, the unicolor kits for C41 and HC-110 uh, is good enough for pretty much any black and white film, even even though it might not be the best.
1: Okay, can I just back up on that one for a moment? Combined C41-ECN, what does that mean? Do they they have kits with chemicals which supposedly do both
0: yeah so what what i'm talking about is motion picture cinema 35 millimeter film has a protective extra layer on the back the of the jet. film yeah it's called remjet right and it, the purpose of it is almost like a lubrication of the film as it's tra- moving fast through through the cinema camera and generally speaking you need to remove that because it yeah. will start to get gummy in a normal development process. So there's a couple ways to remove it. Um, Some people will just manually do it like a a solution of baking soda and water and just shaking the crap out of it. Uh, And sometimes even just rubbing it off with your thumbs can remove it. There's other ways of mechanically moving it or you can get a kit that has an extra chemical and I don't know what it is. But there are ECN2, which is what the process is called, where it adds an additional chemical, which helps remove that that REMJET during the development process. Once the REMJET is removed, the actual emulsion is basically C41. Like you can, and I've done it before, you can take a standard C41 unicolor kit and you can develop film, motion picture color film, even with the REMJET still in it. The problem is all that crap's gonna get into your chemicals. Mm-hmm. So um, like some people, Adam Paul has suggested you could use a coffee filter. So when you're pouring, when you cause you reuse C41 colors, it's not like, you know, black and white where you dump it. So he he suggested that you could use a coffee filter to help filter out the remjet material that gets in there. Or you could just use the ECN2 kit, which does the same thing and somehow it dissolves it or or, or whatever. But um, they make kits now. Film Photography Project sells an all-in-one kit. And while it does work, you know, like when you're doing your developing, you shake the tank and when you start to drain it out, you just black water just pours out of your tank. I've just never seen the colors come out the way I think that they that's should love. That's
1: what I was going to say. I, yeah. I understood. I understand the remjet removal piece, but I my understanding was ECN2 films, which are primarily movie films, have got a different color curve than the normal C41 print films. And so that's why I was intrigued on that one. on why
0: They you, probably do, but when you do C41 in it, it screws up the color curve. So you'll get... that's what I mean. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's what I'm saying is people will take non-Revonjet film. I'm holding up a box of Kodak gold. If I were to, this is fresh film. If I were to shoot this and develop it in one of those combined kits, I'm going to get wacky, wacky colors. And I don't like that. Like to me, I've I've ruined it.
1: Yeah. The chemicals are aimed for a different type of curve.
0: Um, right. So, cool. so if you, you if you develop remjet film like Kodak Vision three or whatever in an E C N developer, you should get a curve correct to what it was designed for. If you yeah. do C forty one in there, you'll still get an image. The colors will just be off. Likewise, yeah. if you do E C N two film in C forty one you will also get an image with the colors off, but you'll also be polluting your developer with the Remjet material. And
1: that's why I asked the question. I thought that, that's intriguing mm-hmm. uh, because surely the, the colors will be off by design because the chemicals right. are aimed at different types of film.
0: What I will say though is on eBay, at least American eBay, I don't know about other areas of the world, you can get tons of expired Vision 3 film in bulk rolls. Yep. And since the curves are already off anyway, at that point, what's the big deal, right? Like, if if all you're looking to do is shoot color film on a budget, get some Kodak Vision Three, go get one of those Universal kits. They're really cheap. I think Film Photography Project sells it for twenty bucks, and you'll you'll get images. It just won't look like how like just don't expect it to look like fresh portrait, you know, or something like
1: that. I I actually recently went a totally different direction on getting films that have has expired. It looks different. And I came across, uh, my lab was getting rid of um, whole bulk rolls of ectochrome, but e-dupe, the the one that was used for duplicating, and, you know, quite expired as well. And I've run it through at ISO 6. I'm getting actual images, but it's got that same effect that you mentioned earlier, you know, film that looks like it was, you know, shot back in the 70s um, kind of effect. But it's quite... Quite good. I mean, I'm going to try cross-processing it next and see what happens there.
2: Well, When they first started with the uh, the C41 motion picture film, it was Seattle Filmworks, which was selling and spooling 5247. And I'm not sure what what this new stuff is, but it was actually tungsten balanced. So when you sent the film back to them to process it, they would process it based on, they would print it based on the light conditions you were under. So even though it was a C41 tungsten-balanced film, you shot it under strobe or in daylight, they would correct for that. Um, if you were going to do it yourself, you really needed to use a blue filter with it to, to, yeah. to get more near-decent color. But I guess is the new stuff, the ECN, is it daylight-balanced or is it still
0: tungsten? Well, Vision, they sell it both ways. Oh, they do. Okay. If it's got a D, it's daylight-balanced. If it's got a T, it's okay. tungsten. So 500T... Is very common. I like 50D, the Daylight Balance 50 Speed Film, because it's a slow emulsion, extremely fine grain. The Daylight Balance does add a slight warmth to it, which I actually really do like. You know, I've shot um, on my site, I have a few examples of 50D developed in an ECN2 developer, and the images come out great. And this is this is I don't even even I don't know how old the film is because I bought it bulk expired on eBay so I'm assuming this film's at least 10 plus years old and I really really liked the look of it but I've also shot 500t and I hated the look of it I've, I've just never liked anything I've gotten from the from the tungsten balanced vision 3 film but the daylight balanced stuff I, I get I've really liked the look of and there's a there's a 250 d also.
2: Well, when you shot the tungsten, did you use an ADA filter or anything to correct?
0: No, I didn't. And I probably should yeah. have.
2: Yeah, that, that would have probably corrected it to daylight.
0: That's
2: really the problem.
0: Yeah, and I just didn't know what I was
1: doing. The 50D that you shot, is that Vision 50D or is that the sinister yeah.
0: version of it? It was the original Kodak Vision Three, which and then the oh, Cinestill. Okay. I've think, used
1: the I've used the Cinestill 50D, which has already got the rimjet removed.
0: And I think it's exact. It's literally C-41. the same film, right? Okay. But I really do like the 50D. That's interesting. So
2: the 50D is a daylight balanced, so yeah. that's balanced at five thousand Kelvin, and the other is probably at thirty two or thirty four hundred. That's cool. Well, when when Kodak made Vericolor, they made it in VPS and VPL. VPS was for short exposure. They were both ASA 100 or 125, but the S was daylight balanced and the L was for long exposure and it was tungsten balanced. So if you were going to shoot the VPL under daylight, you had to use a dark blue filter. Okay, I
3: have something to say about the, uh, the Visions film versus the Cinestill. If you shoot Visions film with the remjet on it, it's not going to look like the Cinestill film with the REM jet removed. You don't have that Cinesil look because the Remjab is an anti alation layer. So with the night shots at Cinesil where you see the glow around the nights, I don't think you will get that with the uh, Visions film.
1: Also, oh, it's not good for petrol stations.
3: Because it's got a clear film base. So the light kind of pipes or spreads in the bright parts.
1: How do you ship petrol stations in?
3: You, can't, you don't. You, you <laughs> have to use <laughs> Cinesil film. It's a law.
0: <laughs> I can tell you... From the times I've done 50D, and this is the original Vision 3, it is not a clear base. It's definitely still the, the reddish amber of a typical C-41 film. But that is a good point you make, though. Does it re- does the presence of the Remjet remove that effect that people love from like CineStill 800T is really well known for having that kind of glow when shooting like neon lights? Or I think you it's asked the... The, the, the glow is okay? The Halation, yeah. I, I yeah. think you might be right. So I was... I was wrong in the sense that it is it is the same film. It's just the effect will be different when you shoot CineStill's version of it. Plus it's easier to develop because then it's just regular C41. Okay. Well, well that's interesting. I didn't know there was that much to talk about <laughs> with, with development. Um, but I wanted to go back to some pickups um, or maybe I should share with you guys some of the ones that I did. Um, I posed a question in the group of uh, of MMEA. Uh, that I was shooting, and Mike, you were the only person to get it right. It was the the sketch, right? So, have you shot yours? I don't have one. <laughs> oh, you don't? Okay. Oh, no, I just have if good
3: I... search skills.
0: I got you. Okay, yeah. This is <laughs> this is one that came to me from Japan, and and I certainly paid far less than what the eBay asking price is for on it. But it's a it's a twenty four by twenty four square format uh, range finder. It's got uh, a Mamiya Sikors... 35 millimeter F 28 lens. Uh, it's a range finder, you know, so I mean, it's got the split image in there and everything. Um, I have not actually developed images from it yet, but what I like about it is how small it is, you know? So like, you know, you hold it up to, you know, an, an SLR and it's a third shorter. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's, 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 it carries very, very nicely. I wouldn't quite say it fit in like a, a jean pocket or anything like that, or if I had a shirt pocket, I don't think it's quite that small, but, Certainly would fit into like a cargo shorts pocket really easily. Having it hanging from your neck, you know, walking around at a zoo or on a hike or something. It doesn't weigh a whole lot. So, um, unfortunately, they're incredibly rare and very, very hard to find. But I I have a feeling this one's going to be – I'm hoping the images come out really nice on it because I've really enjoyed shooting it. How's it compared to the robot? Um, Size-wise, it's pretty close, to be honest with you. Um, It's hard to say, though, because, you know, it doesn't have the big knob on top. Um, I do have a Robot Junior somewhere, but it's packed away. But I would say in terms of size, it's probably a tad bit wider, just a a little bit. Uh, You know, the Robot has, doesn't it have the rotary shutter, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, This just has a standard leaf. So I guess there's really no reason for it to be as as wide as it is. But, you know, and I can't open up the back because I have film currently in it. But I mean, it goes pretty much from cassette to film gate to take up school. There's very, very little gap in there. So, you know, you're getting square images. So you're already going to get slightly more exposures than you would on a roll. But having such a short path between the cassette over the film gate to the spool should, should give you, I would think, at least another exposure or two. So it's a pretty economical camera. It's just nobody really, even though the idea of square format sounds cool, um, for the practical photographer in the late 50s or 60s, there just wasn't a market. You know, there wasn't an easy way to mount them in slides. Uh, photo finishers probably hated it. You know, like like they did a lot of times with half frame. But at least half frame, you could develop two together. You know, whereas this, you're just you're, your spacing is completely off across the whole roll.
2: Was that camera sold for the Japanese market only, or yeah,
0: only right? I don't I think it, it was like even half frame.
2: I mean, half frame was very popular in Japan.
0: Right. And I think the, uh, the idea was if half frame was popular, then what if we pick something halfway between half frame and full frame and make a square format?
2: And, and they were doing a lot of 127 cameras too. So, right. They were, they were I mean, the 127, the square format was part of, part of the culture. I mean, they were, they were, they had accepted the square format. Yeah. Whereas we never accepted it here.
0: No, absolutely not. No, you know, I posed a question to you guys offline. I, I, we didn't talk about it in any of the episodes, but, um, the more I've researched a lot of the camera companies, especially the Japanese ones, I have to conclude that Mamiya was probably the one that experimented the most. Like they were the ones that were just making like everything. Like they were just like Yosemite Sam, you know, pew, I pew, think Rico pew, was in, every a in that too, though. The, the question was, and, and, and Mike, you don't know the answer to this, but um, how, like in terms of 35 millimeter SLRs, can you name how many different lens mounts Mamiya made cameras? So like how many different lens mounts did they put on SLRs? At least four.
2: Yeah. Four yeah. is what
0: I said. And that was,
2: well, how, it was how many it was, was Way was? off.
0: Yeah. I think it was like 11 is how many I counted. Yeah. Because they had, so here, I have another one here. This is a very, very rare one. Uh, although it doesn't say, this is a Mamiya Prismat. It's called the V90. They also made a version of this camera called the Prismat PH. And it's a Mamiya. I got a Mamiya Secor lens on it. And it's got this really bizarre bayonet mount. And now I can't get it off. What the hell? Here we go. So look, it's got this really weird lens mount. Um, they made a camera for Argus, the Argus SLR, which had a unique lens mount. Uh, they made lenses in the exact amount. The, some of the other Prismats had exact amount. Obviously, they did uh, M42s, but even within the M42 mount, they had the SX mount, mm-hmm. which was different. And then it was the um, the NP1000. NC. The NC1000 had its own unique mount. It was a good camera. This is called the ZEX. I'm gonna have a review of this one pretty soon. This has a unique mount. Oh, and then they had um, they made the uh, the Nikon X F, so that's technically MMEA with the Nikon F mount. And then they made that for Ricoh, the Singlex, right? The the Ricoh Singlex. I might be saying it wrong. They had the... the... But they made one with that Nikon F mount too. So like if... I mean, granted, I am kind of including some one-off mounts. But like if if you were to go to Mamiya's factory at various times from like the 60s and 70s, just the pure amount of variation they made on lens mounts. And they tried you know, square format, you know, they experimented with professional level uh, TLRs, professional level S- medium format SLRs.
1: I was going to say, that's just the 35 that you just covered then. I mean, yeah, the, the mounts, um, you start counting the mounts on the on the, the, medium on the medium format, formats, and you're, you know, you're starting to multiply that exponentially as well. Because right. they, they had the, the RB, the RZ, um, right. the TLR, you know, twin, twin lens, they're one of the few TLRs that you can actually change lenses on, aren't
0: they?
2: They've been worse Super
0: Right. But it kind so. of makes you wonder, though, like if you can go back in time and like slap, smack some sense into the guys at MAMI and say, hey, you know, be a little more organized. Like <laughs> where, what could they have possibly done? You know, could they have competed with with Nikon and Canon, you know, if they would have actually picked something and stuck with it instead of this like every other year coming up with something new? Because, you know, the ZEX – Um, One thing that's cool about this camera, and I'll talk about it more in my review, um, this camera has shutter priority mode, it has aperture priority mode, it has programmed auto exposure mode, but then it also has this thing called crossover, which was this very bizarre, like, will let you pick what you want, but if you're wrong, the camera will override you anyway. So like, it's almost like, it'll let you set the camera to... um, aperture priority but if what you pick is beyond what the camera can do it'll just change it to whatever you want or whatever it wants i mean so it effectively like reverts back to program mode even without you telling it to it also had the ability when you focus the lens, it would communicate the distance that you focus the lens to back to the metering system. And it would attempt to calculate the exposure for objects closer or far away. And it it would know whether you had the flash connected or not too. So it's got extra flash contacts. So if you had the correct flash, the metering system would adjust for that. Now that's how all cameras are today like any modern SLR does that already. But remember, this is 1980 and it's a manual focus lens or uh, SLR. So for that level of like complexity and a manual focus SLR from 1980 is actually pretty impressive.
2: I was going to say those are actually, they were imported into the US by Bell & Howell. And Bell & Howell was uh, primarily at that time in in with camera stores. They were primarily specialty stores and the two the two lines that camera stores like to carry were Ricoh and Mamiya because they could make profits on them. The problem with those Mamiya cameras and it goes all the way back to the original ZE and the ZE2 and ZEX, they were not well made. When the uh many many times when you lift up the rewind crank to uh to pull to open the back of the camera, the whole thing comes off in your hand. I mean it just totally separates. Yeah. Uh, plastic component and it just didn't hold up.
0: And the aperture ring, even though it does have click stops, it's not actually controlling anything. The ring itself is not physically connected at all to the diaphragm and the lens. It's all electronic. So when you turn the aperture ring, it's actually just like a a, a potentiometer. Which is detecting the position, sending an electrical signal to the body. And then the metering system controls the opening and closing of the diaphragm. But unfortunately, it has a lot of slop. Now, granted, this is a four, this is a 40-year-old camera.
2: Right. If you look at the back of the lens, you look at the rear of the lens, it's got a, a lot of gold contacts back there that are it's like a wiper. And that's what yeah. you're talking about. Those are, yeah. those are the, all those contacts are what what the wipers that control the aperture or communicate the aperture of the
0: body and what's interesting is the back of the lens has six seven eight nine ten eleven contacts but the body has like 17 Uh there's contacts everywhere so it suggests that Mamiya possibly had future plans for the series but i think it was 1982 maybe 83 is when they just completely jumped out of the 35 millimeter market and decided to focus entirely on medium format so it was a dead end system. I do like the camera. It's got some interesting looks. It's got, if you can remember the Canon A1 has that red seven segment LED display in the viewfinder. You know, it looks like an old Texas Instruments calculator from the seventies. This has that same kind of display. The Contax RTS2 had that as well. If you know what I'm talking about, it's, you know, it's neat. you see red LEDs in the, in the display. So it's a pretty cool camera. I do really like it, but I could totally see. I, I I'm amazed that anybody bought this camera because it was probably pretty expensive too. So I I have a question
3: for the group. Do you have any cameras that you think would be absolutely wonderful, except for one design flaw?
0: I'm sure there's plenty that are like that. Um, I know you really like the Konica three, Paul, but I I do not like the the thumb advance I, I feel like that's sort of like that camera's signature advance but i, I could i could never find your is that a diax this is mine yes this is the Vos
3: diax two a yeah and it's it's nice it's got two separate viewfinders for right. 40 50 millimeter and 85 to 90 it's got a interchangeable lens with a really unique lens mount it's like a reverse screw mount okay what what really drives me crazy about this camera and why? I, and oh, this one's got a really nice uh, Xenon f2 lens too. So That's a plus. But it's got this rewind wheel. It's like a buzz saw on your fingers <laughs> when you try. Yeah. To rewind the film, and it doesn't pull up. Nothing. There's no way to do it. And, and you know, otherwise, I would shoot this camera a lot more than I do. The lens is pretty it's great. Very but, pretty.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And it's just, why did they do that?
2: For me, I it would have to be the Alpha 11E. I can't show it to you because Radu still has it, but uh, the film, ad- the uh, film advance lever on an Alpa is is that's a work of the devil.
0: I never liked the original Alpas with the angled viewfinder, the angled kind of prism No, I didn't like. No matter how much you try to reprogram your brain to hold it like at chin, it's it's not it's not chest level, it's not waist level, it's not eye level, it's like chin level. You hold the camera down to your chin or like in front of your nose almost, and you kind of have to look down at it, and it just it's it so unnatural. Yeah, just don't let Iron know I said that.
2: Very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the Alpa, the 11s, and the not I think is yeah, the 10s and 11s, I could hold them upside down and use them fine. But uh, to try to shoot them the way you're supposed to use them, I, could, I just could never
0: get my head around how the film advanced. It was just so awkward. And, and Mike, you just showed the roly magic. I mean, I guess you could probably yeah. say that's a camera like that too. I mean, it's okay. I don't, It's more
3: frustrating than anything because if the mirror right. doesn't work, it's a brick.
0: Well, but mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like, it's fine that they wanted to make an auto exposure TLR, but give it manual controls, you know, so that if the, I mean, I know, you know, here we are with 2022, n- literally nobody back then was thinking this far ahead, but You know, I mean, they had to have thought that somebody might want to shoot that camera manually. So I always hate it. Rolling Magic Two, you can select aperture and 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 shutter. Okay, so only the original ones like that. In in consumer level SLRs, the Nikon N80, I actually really like because that was one of the last Nikon film SLRs. It has the exact same body, I think, as the D. 40 maybe, I might be wrong here, but it, it has a very modern, almost a DSLR feel to it. It has the good rubberized coating, not the stuff that gets sticky. We were talking about that earlier. The Nikon 80 really feels like a DSLR, but it's, an, it's a film SLR. It's got the full information viewfinder. Everything about it would be a great consumer, like recommended first camera. But the one thing they did on it is when you mount a manual focus lens, Nikon disables the metering system completely just oh. turns it off you know and there's no reason for that like there's no reason the metering still couldn't make recommendations so like for somebody who might want to be new to film but also wants to use some older film lenses yeah it technically works but the camera is essentially a dummy camera at that point so mm-hmm. I, I always hated that
1: as your has your version got the the back which imprints the shooting information in between the the frames
0: no uh i've got
1: the f80 i'm not sure what the actual final letter is but the f80 which is the same as the n80 but it it does it's got the back and between each frame you can have it printing um the information of what settings you had um, when you were shooting Uh, i agree with you that that is a great camera and that was a big miss by nikon to 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 limit um autofocus lenses on only on it Yeah.
2: Well, the mistake was that they, they, they sold that camera as a replacement for the 8008S, which was a full frame, full featured, I mean, manual, didn't care what lens you put on it, except it didn't really like the F-mount. But the 8008S was, was a terrific camera, it used AA batteries, and, and the N80 had basically the same features, but a much lighter weight body. They used two CR123 batteries. I, I think they just they they went down rather than sideways yeah. when they moved to that, that body.
1: If I can pick one that's got a really annoying feature, it's the Fuji GS690W, I think it is, the Texas Leica. Um, it, it is a fantastic camera to shoot. I love using that camera, except when I'm trying to do a landscape shot where I need to put some filters on because then it depending on the filter size, you're limited in terms of bringing that hood forward and all the controls on the lens are under that hood. So you actually can't get to the controls. And that is super, super annoying. It it means that you're limited to using screw-on filters, um, which in a lot of cases may not not, work really well for you.
0: It's it's not exactly the same, but that Futura that you got, Theo, the focusing lever... When it moves yeah. to a certain right, describe that. That's that's horribly designed.
1: Yes, it, when you get to a certain point in the focusing, it actually bumps into the I think it's the aperture control, if right. I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And and you can't move any further. Right. And and so yeah, you're you're actually limited on how far how you can focus based on the
0: aperture. You have to change your aperture to move the focusing lever where you want to go, and then you can, you can move the aperture back. Yeah. It's,
1: it's, it's it's just horrible. Super weird. Horrible.
0: Yeah, they just didn't know what the hell they were doing on an otherwise decent camera. I'm
1: gonna change um change speed a little bit. Okay, your Leotax. This is I. It was Father's Day here on the weekend in Australia, and one of the things that came my way um, is the Leotax. Okay, uh, okay, it doesn't show properly on the camera. Um, which is a uh, we talked about Mamiya being very schizophrenic in terms of everything they were throwing out. Um, Leotax. With this camera especially basically just copied leica as much as they could get as um as straightforward as they, they can um great great camera i found it from a uk seller actually who serviced it and this thing this thing's in great condition it seems to be a really nice camera to use so i've, I've thrown the, the canon 50 millimeter 1.8 l39 lens on it um so it's obviously a leica uh screw mount and uh it's actually a very comfortable camera to hold and, and to use but it's almost an exact copy of the leica 2c i think it is 3c possibly 3c yeah
0: so you got for valentine's day for valentine's day you got a Nica from paul right yes
1: not from paul
0: hang on let, let's clarify that not from paul specific we're just good friends <laughs> if you bought it from paul but it was your wife's present to you Yes. Right. So, so I didn't catch that at first. So, you got the Leotex for Father's Day.
1: Well, I actually got two cameras for Father's Day. I've got I've got another one from my other son, <laughs> so um, which is uh, the Nikon Coolpix 995 Digicam, and that's the okay. transformer one which basically twists around and uh, um, and shoots, I think it's three megapixel. This one, yeah, uh, but it's uh. Absolute classic. This um, I'm actually having a lot of fun with this as well at the moment. You've shot with this one, haven't you, Paul?
2: I just bent mine today. I, I I shot with it. It was great. I did some macros of some flowers. Enjoyed using it today. I put batteries in it, and the the motor just keeps running, trying to focus, and uh, the display was giving me nothing but.
1: Uh, oh no, that's that's a setting. This one does this too. You actually go turn that setting off. It's continue. It sets. It's set to continuous focus by default. If the if the battery runs dry, it goes back to re- reset. Oh
2: well, then I'll get it out of the bin. Yeah, no, no.
1: I <laughs> threw it there's away. a menu setting where you just turn the into single single focus, so you're not it's not constantly uh, and it'll only do that in the um, M mode rather than the A mode. A oh, mode automatically goes yeah. into continuous focus because I noticed that was driving me crazy, and I thought was something wrong with it, and then I looked it up, and and you can actually just turn that off. Um, oh. I'll go check that
2: tomorrow. Mine was actually a 990. Right, okay. Uh, I enjoyed using it. I mean, it was actually a lot of fun to use, and the pictures were good considering they are you know, 3.1 megapixels.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm quite impressed with it, actually. And it does actually shoot in, what's a TIFF mode as well, which uh, I tried that once, and uh, I probably won't again because it took – I uh, could maybe need two minutes to actually write to the
0: card. So Theo, so now that you have um, a Leotax and a Nika, I know you have a Canon rangefinder. I know you're on the lookout for the Australian uh, Nika. Snyder. The Snyder. Yeah. yeah. But um, there, I, I wrote an article recently on got my TANAC site. I've ab- as well. You have a Tanak. Okay. I was going to say, because there's Tanak, uh, there's Honor, Alta, tax and there was a really uncommon one called the Melcon. Which was uh, basically another uh, like a copy too. So uh, I'll give you a few more of the bizarre, and there's even more rare ones like that that only existed in prototype status.
1: Yeah, yeah, I- I'm not gonna go crazy on that. <laughs> you're not gonna go too crazy. <laughs> no, no, I've actually got a, lot, a three, three F as well. So um, okay. I think I've, I'm so you're getting done. Pretty I'm good. Doing, yeah, um, if I can come across a Snyder at a reasonable price. Um, cool. I might do that. but <laughs> I know, think they only uh, made like
0: 50 uh, of them, right? Yeah. And
1: I think yeah. the last one sold at 13,000 euros or something. Yeah. So uh, that's, and that was, you yeah, know, I think about
0: the... So, so just ago. holding the Nika and the Leotech side by side, I mean, do you notice any quality differences? one feel better than the other? Or or like, can you, can, is there I, any I like gut reaction? No, I think they're fairly similar. They're, they're, they're okay. Feel, they both feel,
1: I mean, this this is supposed to be the cheap one but it feels very solid. It feels yeah. really nice. It's uh, I was really surprised because I, I must admit when I read that it's the, the K was the, the cheap model. Right. What they cheaped out on was the top speed. Right. Uh, and I think it's a self-timer. So that to me, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can
0: deal with that. I have a K and I got it. I think I paid 33 bucks for it. It was in terrible shape. Corrosion everywhere. Dirty. The, in fact, the reason I bought it was I've always wanted to try replacing shutter curtains you know and they say on Leica's they're all similar you know like I've read a lot of tutorials and I thought one of these days I should probably try that so I thought hey 33 bucks for a busted out uh Leica clone I could practice on this thing right well Murphy's law kicked in the damn thing works perfectly you know <laughs> I mean it's in it's in terrible shape I mean it's ugly in fact on my site when I reviewed the K I even made it a point to say I purposely did not clean this camera because, I mean, I could have wiped the corrosion off. I could have yeah. made it look nicer. But I was I was truly going for kind of like a rat rod, you know, like a, a heap, you know, just to show that it worked great, you know. And, and yeah. I, I, f- I feel exactly like you do. I think Leotax may have been considered the discount of the discount Japanese Leica copies, but they're still really like good. It. No, yeah, not at all. It doesn't
1: all. feel like it. It feels really good. I mean, this one's had its um, leatherette. Has come undone at some point. It's been glued on a little bit. But, I mean, it's been done really well, so I'm not I'm not too fussed with it. And, uh, and yeah, it feels nice. I think um, this will actually move up into the rotation. Um, maybe you shoot it side by side with the Nicker. Okay. So, uh, but I might might start looking for a Nicker 5 because if I can't get a Snyder, the Nicker 5, apparently the Snyder was based on the Nicker 5. So at least maybe that I you're close to that.
0: I don't know if how easy they are to find down by you, but the, the tower, uh, the tower 45 is, yeah, a, not it's not a five line, though, yeah. but it, it's got the um, both the lever wind and the M3 style door right, on the right. back of it that allows you to see the film plane. I had mentioned earlier the Konica 3 as I don't really care for the th- thumb film advance, but that hasn't stopped me from finding other cameras with that same feature. So, you know, for anybody who could picture what the Konica 3 looks like, uh, here's a camera called the Zenobia 35 that has the exact same thing. So it's got this thumb advance that fires the shutter, you know, or I'm sorry, advances the film. This fires a shutter on top and this advances the film and it's double. And then I have uh, one of these. I think we talked about this on a previous episode is the ADOX 300, same kind of thing. It's got the film advance um on the side fire the shutter on the top but and it's left hand isn't it yeah it's on the left hand so i mean on the video you're seeing it looks right but this is actually my left hand yeah. but the cool feature about this camera is uh mike you have the Memmia magazine yeah uh this is the exact same way and i'm gonna fail to remember how to open this thing it's got a magazine back and i have a spare one so you can actually take the entire film compartment out so like Memmia, with the medium form and SLRs, you know, you could have preloaded cassettes, mm-hmm. magazines ready to go with film. You got a dark slide. If you were a, an active user of this camera, in theory, you could have multiples of these backs preloaded with different films. And when you're done with the end of the roll, you can pop out the whole magazine, pop in another one with film ready to go, you know, and, and you, you can even swap mid-roll.
3: I have a uh, magazine back for the, what is it, the Contiflex S?
0: Contiflex, yeah
3: thing is such a mean in the butt
2: man ADOX when they made that camera they actually sold it in a kit when you bought the camera you got two extra magazines so you got three backs with it oh did it
0: okay it originally came yeah, with that they had like,
2: a fitted case and uh, the thing came in the case with the backs
0: I'm fumbling with it I can't actually remember how to open it um, but um, doesn't that
1: defeat the purpose of trying to change over quickly <laughs>
0: <laughs> I never said it was a a well thought out camera it's like I'm turning the key and it won't open alright I don't want to break it I, I oh, have a wait, question. Look, look at that! Look at that! I put it down you and go. it opened up. <laughs> there you go. So, so the whole thing comes out. All right. What's your question, Paul?
2: The question, since since we, while, while we were on summer while we were all at summer camp, yeah. Anthony's not here, so we can talk about Anthony. While we were all at summer camp, Anthony actually got an Argus C3 camera. Yes. Yes. And and uh, he's very proud of it, and uh, he has uh, both a 35 millimeter and a 50 millimeter. And today, while I was going through Dan Arnold's stuff, I found a hundred millimeter sandbar, and the uh, the finder. The finder is a little weird one that has thirty five hundred millimeter frame. Do you, is do you, it
0: the one that rotates, or is it the one no, that just has the mask?
2: It's the one with the mask.
0: The, the mask, mask okay
2: down over the top. Yeah. So, I, I think we should I think I should send that to Anthony. Yes. So he's mm-hmm. a complete kit. And for shooting alligators and especially, it'll be very useful. <laughs> and, and and for the uh for the space launch, if it ever happens, if you'll have a hundred millimeter lens to uh to capture you know great detail.
0: For uh listeners that, that wouldn't know this in our private chat there was a little bit of shit talking between Anthony and Theo where um Anthony was was issuing the virtues of the Kodak medalist as the perfect camera for rocket launches. But but Theo, you were going with the Mamiya seven, right? Well yeah I mean if you're gonna go medium format I was definitely going with that. <laughs> it's a little bit more
1: convenient and well I mean I don't know comparing the lenses I don't know because I have it short shot the medalist i'm assuming it's got a really nice lens on it but the medalist has a very bad reputation of breaking um similar to the rocket you know leaking fuel well, paul- so, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, to, to my mind maybe they're suited for each other
0: <laughs> paul you said that you would rather have what like ice picks shoved under your toenails than have no, to touch on the medalist no,
2: actually what i said was that if i had my choice between using a kodak medalist or sitting at home with a dead fish in my mouth I'd want to know how long the fish have been
0: dead. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's too funny. Um, I am a fan of the Medalist. I really do like that camera, and I think it's that five-element Ektar lens would be perfect for what Anthony's trying to use it for. But yeah, their mic's oh, got his yeah. right there. Is that a Medalist one or a two? That's a one. It's That's a one. A one. It's you can food. see the fine focus. Wheel. Oh yeah, I see yeah. It now. Yeah. One thing that is overlooked about the one is it has a self timer. The two does not. And that's a camera that kind of begs to be put on a tripod for, you know, like remote triggering. I mean, I've actually taken pictures like group shots with myself in it with my medalist one, and there is a self timer on the one, but there is not on the two for whatever reason, the flash synchronization governor, they had, they didn't have room or something for both the self timer and the flash sync at the same time. Um, but that's, that's funny that we're talking about Anthony, cause I, that was one of the things I had written down. I wanted to talk to him about is he finally had a chance to shoot the Argus and, uh, the images he got were pretty good. You know, yeah, we got to I mean, get
2: him to put those on the, we need to show those images. Cause they actually,
3: yeah,
0: they good. Yeah. Like, excellent. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what a lot of people say, you know, I mean, you, you could I, make I like fun the of images
3: from the camera. I just hate shooting it. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I, I don't mind using it only because it's like, I, I kind of walked that line. In fact, this is something that was going to bring up too. Um, a, a guy wrote me in the comment section on one of the reviews. I think it was for the Chinon CE4 where I made a comment that I liked the camera. I thought it was a fine camera. It made good images, but it was boring. And that I said that boring cameras make boring images. And he thought like this guy got really angry with me and started sending me the scathing email about, well, then you must be a terrible photographer. Cause if you can't get a good image out of the, out of a good camera, then it, the problem's you and not the camera. And, and I think he missed the point that you know, a, a camera, certainly any camera can make a good image. You can get a great image out of a pinhole camera. Like you don't need, you know, a top of the line, anything to make a great image. However, I think any one of us should be able to agree that a camera that works with, within your expectations or has good ergonomics or is pleasant to use it is if when it becomes kind of an extension of you as the photographer, I think you're just more naturally going to get better images. Whereas if Paul, I was forcing you to use a metalist, you're going to hate it. Right. And that's, I think, going to reflect your images. You know, if you don't like the Argus C3 and someone forces you to use it, you're going to have a miserable experience and you're less likely to get images. But on the contrary, if whatever your favorite camera happens to be, you know, your favorite, that M4P that you're about to get on Thursday, (laughs) uh, if that becomes an extension of you and you genuinely love shooting it, I think that that's going to help you just work better. You know, when, when a tool like a camera is doing what it should be, but you're also enjoying using it. I think that those things kind of go hand in hand. So, you know, if you don't like the Argus, uh, then obviously then I wouldn't tell anybody that they have to use it. But, you know, anybody, for for the few people who think that they're not capable of good images, I mean, Anthony saw they, he got some really fantastic shots from it. Mm -hmm. And it helps too. I really like the Sanmar, the 35 millimeter, not not even just because the lens is good, because it is. But I think when you give that camera a wide angle, I think it sort of masks some of the inefficiencies of it because you don't even really need to use the viewfinder, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you, in a way, the Argus can kind of become kind of like the Lomo LCA and that you can kind of shoot it from the hip framing. Isn't quite as a requirement for it, you know, but I have always been a fan, you know, I know on the, in fact, on the, the desert Island episode, that was one of my three I would bring with, and, and Anthony had a, if you listen to his, his, his comment, it's like, yeah, but Mike, you're going to be stuck on the island. Are you sure that's a camera you're going to want to shoot? Like, I, I think had he had already shot his C3, he might have responded slightly differently on it. But um, they are quite nice. We'll have to test them. Yeah, but he's not here. Taking a slightly different approach here again,
1: I got something that gets very underrated these days and it's like super cheap. It's the, the Konica um, Auto Reflex TC. You can buy these for absolute peanuts. Out there yeah, they're Iowa. cheap. They get very underrated. I'm actually quite happy with this camera. It's it's actually a really nice little camera. Yeah, it's limited, it's basic, but this one came and this is where you get the real bargain. It came with a 40 millimeter yeah. pancake yeah. lens. And and that is what
0: I was actually after. They're still quite cheap. Yeah, the most amazing lens. I mean, for I, I don't even know that anybody else made a 40 millimeter F-18 and an SLR mount. I mean yeah. That's awesome, and it's small too. It's very, very. It's almost it's tiny. I mean, so it's
1: it's um and it's something I'm looking forward to actually shooting at the moment because it's it's just I'll, I'll get an adapter for it as well for digital. Yeah. But um, I'm just looking forward to shooting in it with it at the moment because it just looks. I mean, it looks functional right. enough. It goes up to a thousandth of a second. Um, it's got all the apertures up to f22. Down to, sorry, should I should say down to f22. And um, this is something I've never seen before. When, when you, you wind and yeah, you shoot and, and you want to put the camera away there's a and the lever, the, the actual thumb lever sticks out, there's this little button here that you just press and it brings that lever in back to be um, uh, flush with the actual body. I've never seen that before. Yeah. That, that's that's yeah, superb.
2: Yeah. Well, the Mamiya 500 and 1000 ETL had it, but it was a button on the top that you okay. put. Okay. But you're right, Theo. That, that's the off switch. The
0: off yeah. switch. Yeah, the EF, right, which... but that is cool. And, and honestly, that lens, like you said, is fantastic. It's oh, got yeah, semi-wide angle. It's fast. Very few people made it. Minolta had a Rakor 40 F2, but it wasn't 1.8. You know, not that it's that much of a difference, but that lens is extremely expensive. But that Konica, you could also find it, That's the, yours is the Autoreflex TC, right? Yes. You could also find that lens I found a lot on the um, FS1, Mm -hmm. which was the consumer, like even lower end camera than what you have there. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, wouldn't the 41.8 have been like a a kit lens? Yep. Because they're pretty common.
2: It it was, and it it was fairly expensive.
0: But it came okay. out
2: with a T T4 also. The T C okay. and T4 were out at the same time.
0: Yeah, they're really nice. So just again, they're so small. You know, you put Johnny uh, Sisson has one. He puts on his auto dash reflex that the half frame, full frame. So that thing's got a huge, heavy body. But you put that thin, very lightweight, yeah. small lens on it, it. It 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 balances. It almost makes it feel like you're shooting a body without a lens, but you yeah. know, it's it's that same mount, the um the AR mount, the Kaneki AR mount. But well, I
1: thought I mention that because it's such a bargain. to, to be Yeah, no, up that's a good deal.
0: I sh- I've been wanting. I've that's been on what I call like my passive radar, like where I'm not actively looking for one, but if I do find one and expensive enough i'll snap one up.
1: i picked up the body the lens and it came as a zoom 80 to 200 and ever ready case which is, is literally disintegrating as you look yeah. at it um and, and it was like 50 or 60 dollar purchase for the whole lot which is just yeah. just amazing value yeah and you know
0: what's funny is if you search for that lens by itself you'll pay more than that well you'll yes. pay
2: 175 to 200 yeah. dollars
0: Yep. Today. which i hate that people do that that they separate the lens and then sell it for more but that, that's the reality of you know the market but... so mike don't leave it on passive after this episode because we've just <laughs> everybody. we'll just edit this whole section out <laughs> so nobody hears about it and then we'll go out and buy more but i do have one more you know we're running short on time here but one more really cool camera that i've been really really excited um i actually saw one of these at ira's house when i was there last year and I never thought I would own one because you just don't see them very often. But this camera was made by a Japanese company called Terraoka, and it's it's uh, called the Auto Terra Super. Um, it's a 35 millimeter rangefinder. Uh, it's motor drive, so it's got a wind up, you know, on the bottom. You wind it up to spring load, like a lot of cameras did. But the ergonomics, of this camera are just awesome. It's got a front shutter release right here, kind of like a Miranda does which, you know, the front shutter release like that were, were somewhat common with SLRs, but I don't know of too many range finders that have a front shutter release button like this. I'll, I'll, I'll fire the shutter. Let ended wind it up a little more. I don't know if you guys could hear it, but it, it just, I love the way it sounds when it fires the shutter, but. Whoa, yeah, snap. Very snappy. It's got a really bright viewfinder. You know, I mean, it's a typical Japanese rangefinder in that regard. So, it, this one has a, a an Auto Terra Plover 2.8, but I do believe they made a version that had a Zuno 1.9 on it. So, that's the really rare one. And that's probably what I handled at Iris House. But I mean, it's got the front shutter release, which I just, I lo- I've always liked front shutter releases because when you hold the camera to your eye, When you're squeezing in, you're pushing the camera towards your face and your face is already stabilizing the camera, you know? So in a way I think it allows you almost like a very perfect, very short, soft movement so that you can stabilize the camera, you know, at slower shutter speeds, like one fifteenth, maybe even one eighth, uh, if you need to, but really, really nice camera quality is excellent. Um, that company had a line of auto terrors. I believe this is one of the last ones before they went out of business, but, um, just really, really neat, you know, and it just, it's not one that you typically see too often in the market. Uh, but I've had a blast shooting it and I've always liked the, the clockwork wind up cameras because I, I love the sound and just the idea of, you know, like a, like a music box or something like that.
1: Wish I'd known what it was because I saw one ages ago and it was going for peanuts and I, I just thought it was one of those off-brand cameras. So I just Auto Terra. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. They had the earlier ones, I think they all had the wind up motorized film advance, but I think the really early ones, you still had to manually cock the shutter. So the wind up only operated the film advance, not cocking the shutter, but this one, this one does. In fact, the manual suggests you could shoot up to two exposures per second, which you know, you might be able to go faster. The problem is, is the faster you click button, you're, you're still shaking the camera. But yeah. um, I don't know that I would try that. But I, I haven't actually developed my first roll from it yet, but I am super excited to see the results that I get from it. So TBD on that one. But between that, the Zenobia 35. Anthony's not here to record all this, so uh, we'll make Novak do it. No, I'm just kidding. The, uh, the Adox 300, um, my neat little Prismat with the uh, proprietary lens mount, this, Oh, one more cool thing. I'll show off on this one too. So this is the, the Mamiya Prismat V90. Uh, It's got this bizarre lens mount, but another cool thing about it is this is a leaf shutter. So, you know, it's got in the film compartment, you could see the leaf shutter there. Right. So for those of you who've shot pretty much every other leaf shutter SLR, usually when you drop the mirror down, there's a capping thing that falls down in the film gate because you don't want light to enter the uh, film compartment when the shutter opens. Right. Is that, am am I making sense here? Yeah. This one has, when you advance it, cloth focal plane curtain, but only one though. So it looks like a focal plane shutter, but that curtain is just there to prevent light from hitting the film plane when the mirror is down. So when the mirror is down, the shutter opens, I can see through the viewfinder. I fire the shutter and then, the, the cloth curtain moves out of the way and then the leaf shutter opens and closes again. So it's a lot of
1: things happening <laughs> at once
0: there. It, yeah, very much so. And this camera is heavy too. I mean, it's it's about in terms of weight, I'd say comparable to like a Nikon F with lens.
3: I think that's a simpler mechanism than the ContiPlex.
0: It probably is because it doesn't have to. Keep having that synchronization of the capping plate and the mirror and the opening and closing and such, but um, you know it's it's a neat camera. Uh, these lenses are very very good. The problem this one has is the Focus Helix is completely seized. It is, you know, Agfa green goo, but cement. Like I've I've even... Which lens is that? It's the Mamiya Secor 48 millimeter f 19 Probably a six element is my guess. I know they use this lens in a bunch of different mounts, but this one has the mount that's unique to this one camera, which they never used again. Like there's so many dead end lens mounts that Mamiya made, but the lenses are very, very good. And the camera feels nice. The viewfinder is nice. I really like that shutter mechanism, but um, it's definitely a unique camera. So hopefully I'll get a chance to shoot it sometime. Uh, But all right, I think that's pretty good. We had a good um, break off. I know I, uh, mental health, you know, just some other things that we all needed to get done. Paul, you had COVID. Uh, so I'm glad you're still alive. Theo, you know, you've been busy at work. Uh, Mike, you're busy shoot, buying less, but shooting more, right? I think you said earlier. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Anthony never came back, but uh he did some traveling to so the alligator was- got him. <laughs> An alligator got him. Yeah. No, I think it was the, the right time for us to kind of take a quick break. You know, Theo, I think you summarized it pretty good on the negative positives. You know, we didn't want it to get stale either with the podcast format that we have with uh allowing anything to go. I mean, like, you know, we kind of planned this episode for us to just catch up you know, invite Mike on and see what he was doing. I had no idea we'd spend as much time as we did on uh, film developing and stuff. And that's that's the greatest thing about the show is we never really know what's gonna happen. But we got some cool plans um, ahead for the rest of the next, um, we'll call it season two. Uh, maybe we'll do some trivia. We kind of been toying around with doing that. See if we could stump stump somebody right uh mike you and i were on the classic lenses podcast once right didn't we go head to head during trivia yes we did yeah we did um there was some controversy
3: between an answer that simon forrester gave I, I do remember that i have to i have
0: to go back and listen but anyway so paul any any last parting thoughts no we're
2: uh it's fun we're it's good good to be back with you guys
1: exactly me
0: really really glad to be
1: back i didn't get a summer break because it's winter in fact we've just actually hit spring so um That starts on the first of September, so um, I'm all rejuvenated and and, uh, ready to spring back in action. Sorry, had to do that.
0: (laughs) I don't want to. I don't want to boost Robot Theo's ego too much, but um, should we ask him if he has a a Robot Anthony friend?
1: We might have to actually. We might. Yeah, we might (laughs) have to.
0: We'll we'll replace Anthony with Robot Anthony. (laughs) All right, you guys. It's great talking to you. Um, We'll see you in two more weeks. I'll have this episode out later this week. So uh, welcome back and uh, see you guys in future episodes. All right. Good night. Talk All right, to bye, everybody. Bye. bye. Good night, guys. Hey, guys. What happened to Anthony? Anthony is,
2: uh, he made it back to the hotel, but he's had a bad experience with some Apalachicola, Higgly, higgly Wiggly road food. And
0: uh, oh boy, <laughs> he's in the shitter.
2: <laughs> he will be, he will be worshiping the porcelain goddess for the, <laughs> for the Persea. We, should we, should we shouldn't
0: laugh. We shouldn't laugh. We shouldn't laugh, but we've all been there.
2: <laughs> Mike, Mike, edit Too that funny. out. Edit
0: it out. <laughs> oh, that's, that's going to be our bonus clip at the end of the credits. <laughs> what happened to Anthony? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what happened to Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> uh.